Hey, welcome back. Uh, this is Ryan Shriver, CTO of Singlestone. Welcome to our latest episode of Bound to Context. With me today, I got Casey Lee of CTO Gaggle. And Casey, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. Where are you joining us from? I'm in uh, Northern California, a town called Folsom. Uh, you probably think of Johnny Cash when you hear Folsom, but uh, just outside Sacramento, we're a couple hours from Bay Area and a couple hours from Tahoe. Plus, awesome. Plus, yeah. One of my favorite uh, Johnny Cash uh, albums of all time, Live in Folsom Prison. So cool. Well, um, so uh, introduce us, uh, Casey, uh, to our listeners. Tell us a bit about yourself and the work you do. Sure. Uh, so um, I I had spent uh, many years doing consulting. Uh, that's actually how you and I met, uh, yeah. working with large enterprises, helping them uh, increasing the speed and safety of software delivery, helping them with uh, DevOps transformations, uh, cloud transformations, getting into AWS and so forth. And uh, just recently took a, uh, a new role as CTO for an ed tech company called Gaggle. And uh, Gaggle builds software that's used by uh, school districts all over the country, covering millions of students. And uh, what the software does is it monitors the school-issued uh, Google or Office 365 accounts, and it looks for uh, primarily any forms of uh, self-harm or bullying going on on the, the district-issued accounts. And uh, the thing that was really exciting for me about coming to this role is, you know, is spending many years helping large financial services companies is, is one thing, but using your tech abilities to help save the lives ultimately of students is is a very different thing so it's, it's a very uh exciting uh role exciting opportunity last school year alone uh we we intervened and saved over 900 lives these were people that were looking on acting out on suicides and because the software detected this and got people involved is phenomenal and with um distance learning the numbers are even scarier we're only a couple months into the school year and there's a 70% increase, over 400 lives saved already this year. And uh, what, what's also crazy is it's not just the lives that we save, it's also the lives that uh, we, the lifetimes that we save. Over 60,000 incidents of people talking about cutting or thinking about hurting themselves. And those, those students are getting help as well. So yeah, it's really cool to be able to use tech skills uh, for, for a, a cool mission like that. Absolutely. And I was going on your website and watch one of the videos uh, that, that were out there and I was floored. I mean, I, I'd heard of you guys, but just floored as to, to your point, how we can leverage this technology, which a lot of times has a negative connotation in learning um, these days. Certainly we have, we, we, we both have kids that are at yep. home looking at the computer, right? But you're, you're right. You're taking this technology and harnessing the power of it to do positive things. Yep. Yeah, it's a it's a fun challenge because uh, technically dealing with that amount of data and uh, we're, we're leveraging the AWS platform very heavily. So uh, using um, some cool engineering techniques to uh, address these large data problems. And of course, we're always hiring, looking for uh, engineers and um, hiring some leaders in the tech org. So uh, always looking for um, some help from folks to to build the team and build the product. Well, cool. Well, well, in your role, what are some of the types of problems that you tend to, you and your team tend to solve? And with those, talk us through a little bit, like how you go about, like what's your approach when you get a problem, how you go about up through that one? Uh, so it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, start by collecting some data, right? You got to ask questions. You got to learn a little bit about what the problem is. Um, but the trick is 
uh, ask just enough so that you can move on to the next step, which is acting. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's easy to get stuck in analysis paralysis and trying to overanalyze the problem and uh, you've missed any chance to resolve the problem in a timely manner. Uh, so, so you got to gather a little bit of data, then you got to act. And even if it's wrong, sometimes you just got to move. You just got to try something based on the information you have and, uh, and then assess and figure out, okay, was that the right thing? Do we continue pushing in that path or that was wrong and go somewhere else? Um, there was a show I used to watch uh, called House. Do you ever watch House? Uh, it's about this crazy doctor uh, who was brilliant. Uh, and, and he would always, by the end of the show, he'd always figure out what the problem was, right? But he would be wrong like five or six times beforehand. Like, oh, I'm sure, he's like, I'm sure the problem is this. And then they go down the path and it's wrong and it's wrong and it's wrong. And then he finally solves the problem. But the point is, uh, the thing I liked about that character, I mean, he was a total jerk, but aside from the personality part, the, the thing I liked about the character was he, uh, he, would, he would move. He would take a little bit of information and act on it. Um, there's a specific example of this uh, I can use at Gaggle. So when I when I joined the team, one of the biggest challenges we have at Gaggle is uh, delivering software uh, fast in a in a timely manner, rapid delivery of software. Uh, so I went through and did a, a value stream mapping exercise to assess the the um, the delivery process here at Gaggle, uh, and and kind of set a very audacious goal with the team. And the goal was I, I want each dev team these dev teams manage their individual components of gaggle i want each dev team to be deploying at least once a day one deployment per day per team uh and so we said okay let's figure out how to get there start with the vsm and so we used the vsm as that first stage gather data and uh one of the things that stood out right away was uh, some of the metrics you know lead time was like over 75 days for um, new changes. Uh, but one of the metrics that jumped out the most was uh, WIP, work in process. Uh, there was a ratio of like 10 to 1, 10 uh, um, items in JIRA being in progress per one developer. Right? Yeah. And so that was that was enough. It's like, okay, cool. We, we, um, we don't need to dig deeper in all the others. Let's start with focusing on that. And that's that. Let's take some information. Let's act right away. And so we started digging into well, what's going on with WIP. Why is it so high? Uh, and and after a little bit of digging, what we found was that the feedback loops were too large. So uh, it, it, what was happening was uh, devs were waiting on feedback on if their changes were going to work. And so they would, because they were waiting, they would pull another Start ticket. Work, right. Right. And so it just keeps it keeps building on stuff. So we're like, okay, why are the feedback loops long? Right. And, uh, and so what, what we realized was running the application in AWS, there's all these Lambda functions and containers and dependencies, and uh, it was hard for them to validate a change because there was only a limited number of environments that were shared. And so what would happen was you'd, you'd pull a ticket, you'd do some work, you'd try to validate a little bit of it locally, but then you'd push it up and uh, let QA do some validation on it. Well, now you've got this long wait time of days and that's where additional whip. So what was our action? Our action was, well, cool. Let's start building automated environments for uh, all of the different changes that are being made. So each, each dev could then have their own environment where they could replicate uh, all the dependencies and get immediate feedback on their change without uh, waiting for shared resources. And so what has it got to now? Um, I mean, how close are you getting to that one, one release per, per, per day per team? 
so we've got we've got some work ahead. I think it'll take probably another few months before we get there. Uh, but what we've seen is that WIP number has gone way down. So we're probably at a ratio closer to like three to four to one. And yeah. our lead time is uh, closer to 20 days now where it was closer to seven, five days. That was also, we also imposed some WIP limits. So WIP uh, is one of those things that's a leading measure, right? It's yeah. it, if you could enforce control over WIP, uh, you, you will increase your throughput and decrease your lead time just because of the context switching and so forth. So we, we put we put some artificial whip limits in place, but then also just naturally whip came down by uh, giving those uh, environments with faster feedback. It's funny because I've been I'm teaching for my clients a Kanban introduction to Kanban for the executives and management, and we we often bring out Little's Wall. Right, you're 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 a little slow, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I'm saying, so I'd say exactly. We walk you through a simple math exercise here. Okay, lead time is a function of whip and throughput. Okay, yep. Whip and throughput, numerator and denominator. Um, one of those is we can get the team to be more efficient. You know, 10% more efficient. That's your denominator. Or, yep, you can simply reduce whip and have the same effect. Which of these w would you like to do? And once you right. sort of explain it like that, then they're like, oh. So that's why things are so slow because we got so many things in progress. You're like, bingo. That's right. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because once they get that, then the actions are hard, right? Reducing whip is a really hard thing because to your point, often organizations are driven by utilization or developer utilization. And so to your point, how do you, how do you help your teams resist the, well, I'm going to be, um, you know, not busy, let me just grab another thing to do. Have you taught them to sort of pair up or work with people to get things done or have you broken that kind of habit? So uh, what we're focused on right now is valuing finishing over starting. Finishing is what we celebrate. We don't celebrate starting things. And so uh, if you're blocked and somebody else is working through something, then what the appropriate thing to do is, hey, let me swarm with you. Let me pair with you on that. Or maybe the whole team is ready to move on to a new epic, but some persons, then everybody get in there and swarm together and let's get that thing across the finish line. Uh, but the other part to that is the definition of done needs to, to be be well-defined. Uh, if your definition done is like, I got the PR created or it's in QA or that that's not enough. Definition of done is it's being used by customers. And so you have to keep grinding on that until it's in the hand of customers. Uh, because otherwise you're, you're pretty much guaranteed that it's in my definition, that's still whip. It's, it's still whip until it's in the hands of customers. And so, uh, uh, we're redefining the definition of done so that everybody's involved to get it across the finish line is a, is an important aspect that we see. And how long has this been going on? Like how is this over the last six months? Like how long has this um, been going on? Yeah. So um, I joined in June. And so we've, uh, yeah, we've been going through this, uh, these changes over the past six months, uh, five months, five, six months. Uh, and so uh, moving to Kanban was an important point of that and uh, introducing those whip limits uh, changing some of the patterns but then also tooling was was a was a part of that as well so uh, we're introducing some uh, we're, we're heavy AWS users so we're using AWS code build and code pipeline for building a pipeline where every commit to the trunk has a chance at getting to production uh, okay. and so that's a that's something we're focused on uh, and then that environment automation was an important piece right where Previously, there was a, a fair bit of investment in cloud formation, but it was kind of 
disparate spread throughout the organization. Uh, we've been uh, embracing AWS CDK, which is a uh-huh. uh, familiar with this. So it's a yeah. um, it, rather than writing declarative JSON or YAML templates to define your infrastructure, you're you're writing code, which is nice. I mean, we're we're all just we love writing code at the end of the day. So you're writing code that declares the state of your infrastructure. At the end of the day, it's just creating cloud formation. But by embracing um, CDK, we're able to build uh, primitives that get used by other parts of the team. So for example, a um, we use ECS for our containers. So ECS clusters and ECS services can be defined in a very opinionated way as a as a as a resource, and then that can be reused as a library as code by other folks in the organization. And so we're able to increase um, the the speed of building the infrastructure through those composable uh, constructs. CDK has been been great for us. And 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 you're and we're we're starting to play with CDK. But is it the same type of folks? "Quote unquote DevOps cloud engineers that used to do cloud formation or Terraform are they the ones who generally do this, or are you more your software developers get more exposed to this? Um, it, yeah, it's a great question. So the the answer is both. So what, here's what you've got. Uh, one of the challenges you had before was the DevOps engineers, the people that own the environments and the platforms. Uh, they they had strong opinions on how you do something like a load balancer or um, an ECS service, but how do they how do they, where's their teeth, right? They could say, here's an example JSON file, go go use this for cloud formation. And then the devs kind of go off the reservation and go crazy with it. And so it, it becomes hard to enforce it and, and get consistency. With CDK, what you have is the, the DevOps engineers are building those, uh, so they're in, in CDK, they're called constructs. So they're building the lower level constructs, things like, uh, like one that we created was, a, um, an ECS service that was consuming messages from um, SQS. So everything involved with that, the SQS queue, the ECS service, the task definition, the auto scaling policies, everything is built by the DevOps engineers as a low level construct. It's a Python library that then the devs can just add a dependency on and it's just a class. They just instantiate it, pass in five or six, maybe more parameters into the, the class and then boom, they've got Everything that is that nice, it becomes a bigger Lego block. That uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so they're defining things like the naming of it and those sort of things. But a lot of the mechanics of it is sort of sort of codified in these sort of yeah building blocks. I was writing the term building blocks now, where you're saying that it's really these bigger building blocks. Yep. So how is the, how has the team embraced this? Has this been something where it's like, oh yeah, or has it been sort of a bit of a struggle to to get? them over to this kind of thinking um so that on the the devops side the devops engineers uh really enjoy it they've enjoyed working with cdk uh they're not sitting there fighting with yaml and json anymore now they're writing code and they can write unit tests for their code so they've really enjoyed it um on the uh, software engineering side they are they know the problem that we're trying to solve and so they're excited that this is helping to solve the problem but it is one of that, okay, now I've got to learn a new set of tooling and so forth. And AWS has been great about this. AWS came in and did a workshop for all the engineers, gave them a, a one day like crash course on CDK, hands-on. Uh, it, it actually, it's, a, it's, a, it's an open source workshop, um, cdkworkshop.com that AWS put out there. Uh, it's okay. a good resource for learning CDK. Uh, and so so the devs are, are enjoying it. They're also enjoying though the fact that they're writing code, right? Rather than 
hacking on YAML, like a thousand line long JSON or YAML, they're, they're working on uh, in yeah. Python. Yeah, yeah, if you, you forgot that uh, closing parenthesis somewhere down uh, in the JSON. Or like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so I think what's interesting, Casey, as I hear you is, think about your approach. You come from a software development background, but you mentioned tools like value stream mapping and lean. You, you certainly have that sort of influence. Who have been some of the influences that help, that help you, um, whether it's authors or books, or that help you sort of create the way that you view the world? Who are some of those? The, the, the kind of go-to book for me in a lot of this stuff uh, was Jez Humble's um, Continuous Delivery book, um, Paul Duvall's Continuous Integration book, and Jez Humble's Continuous <laughs> Don't Delivery. forget to mention that one. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, so Jez Humble definitely has been a huge influence. There's, there's a talk that I've heard him give a bunch of times where he does this thing, uh, Martin Fowler referred to it as the CI test. I don't know if that, if that was Jez's term. Anyways, the CI test goes like this. He asked the audience, uh, he says, uh, raise your hand if you're currently doing continuous integration. Okay, and of course, everybody raises their hand because we're all doing continuous integration, right? He says, okay, cool. Then he says, keep your hands up if everybody, everyone, all developers commit and push to a shared mainline branch every day. And of course, like half the hands go down in the room, right? But the ones that still have their hands up, they're like, yeah, I got this. I passed the test. And then he says, um, if a build fails, keep your hand up. If when a build fails, you get it back to green within 10 minutes. And of course, like all the hands go down at that point. And so the, the thing that's interesting, he's been, I, I, gosh, I don't remember. How, it's been probably a decade, maybe, maybe, but it's been a long time he's been asking that question. And you still get the same response is the part that's crazy to me is we've come so far, but we haven't like we're still we broken builds last days or uh, we've got people that live on branches that, you know, sit there for a week. Gitflow is still a thing. Uh, right. So, um, so Jazz was definitely a, a big influencer in uh, in the whole idea of continuous delivery and, and so forth. Um, the other one uh, recently just picked this book back up, uh, Dominica DeGrands. Uh, huh. she, she wrote a book um, called Making Work Visible. Actually, uh, check this out. There's a yeah. we were talking about whip earlier. I've got these stickers here. This is from her book. It says more, no less whip. Um, I love it. So like this is the only sticker I put on my laptop I, I, and I keep it right here to, to remind myself to say no more often it's uh, to, to control whip. Um, but she, she wrote this great book about how you need to make work visible and um, and and she talks a lot little's law she talks a lot about little's law she talks a lot about yeah. uh, how whip is a leading indicator of lead time and how to ultimately get control of your backlog uh, so yeah no, that's interesting I mean just the whole the whole visibility is a, is a theme that we hit again and again we had a Clark Ching on a couple episodes I don't know if you ever heard of Clark Ching he's Clark's a New Zealand guy but um, you ever heard of theory constraints um, yeah it's, yep. it's a so Clark Ching is sort of the um, Ellie Goldratt of his generation, our generation. Um, okay. And so he really made a lot of the theory constraint stuff a bit more approachable and understandable. But a lot of it's tied back to the same sort of thinking. It, it's, you know, somewhere in your whole flow, there's a constraint at some point, right? So do you know where it is? And it sounds like, you know, you've been talking, you sort of pinpoint part of your action, I sense is, where is that constraint? Let's, right. let's take some action around that. But then the constraint doesn't go away. It just moves. Right. You know, and, and so that's right. the part you always got to understand is it's once you fix it here, it's going to move somewhere else in your system. And 
pretty sure I know where the next constraint's going to be, right? I'm unblocking yeah. feedback time for my devs. Uh, what's next? QA, right? Yeah. How, how we're, we're still doing a fair bit of manual testing. We've got a ton of automated testing, but there's still a step for manual testing. That uh, if we unleash all these devs and and increase their feedback time, guess what? That's that's my next constraint, and we're going to be back in that loop of uh, analyze and and act again. Yeah. So. No, and the thing I picked up from him, and maybe you'll think about this as well, is whenever in the software process, whenever your developers, your developers should be the throttle of the whole system, your engineers. And whenever that moves to testing or analysis, then you kind of need to fix that. And in his opinion, get it back to developers. Your engineering essentially is all you're always the throttle of how you okay. go more or less. Because to your point, if you unleash them, it's going to flood QA, or if you yep. will. All right. And then we're going to see what build up there. We got to go tackle that. Maybe some automation is smarter. But originally, what you want to do is come back to that's not the bottleneck and get it somewhere back into the engineering realm. At least that's his opinion. Is you're, you it. always want your and I had to think about it for a while, and I still wrestle with it a bit. But in solve his sort of thing is in software development, you you really want your engineers to be that constraint somewhere in the engineering organization. Um, and uh, anyway, now it's fascinating stuff. I think that you know, so it's 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 I'm hearing both. There's the CICD influence stuff of Jess Humble and Paul and Fowler and others. And I'm also hearing there's this sort of lean, you know, Pop and Dicks are another ones that, that yep. I was early on. That's how I learned a lot of the lean stuff early was the Pop and Dicks um, as well. And so, so we've talked about the how software is happening. How do you, and the CTO, you're the architect too, right? So I'm, I'm presuming that, that you're overarching looking at architecture. How does architecture and design in your mind, fit in or balance in with a lot of what we've been describing, which is the flow of work through the developer team. Is there? Do you guys have a certain design phase that when you get involved, or is it like help me understand how design in your world fits into that? Yeah. So uh, there's there's um, kind of two types of uh, architecture that I think when you need to consider. Um, I've heard. I don't remember where I heard this, uh, but it was referred to as outer architecture and inner architecture. Have you heard this analogy before? Uh, the outer architecture. Outer architecture talks all about how we do integrations between services and how you do think. Security tends to find its way into outer architecture and uh, messaging systems and scaling and and, and a lot of the um, uh, platform requirements end up in the outer architecture. And so I spend a lot of time focused on the outer architecture because uh, my 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 idea is if if we build a good playground for the devs, they will solve the inner architecture. I want the teams to own the inner inner architecture. And sometimes that looks like hey, if one team says uh, we really want to use uh, uh, JavaScript, TypeScript for these Lambda functions for, for our application. And then other teams like, no, we want to stick with uh, Java and ECS. I want to support that. I want to be able to say, you, you have the right people. You have the right you, understanding of the requirement. Uh, you guys own the inner architecture of your applications. But security needs to be addressed. Uh, integrity of data, um, encryption of, of information at rest and transit needs to be solved. I don't want all the teams solving those problems on their own. And so that's where the outer architecture plays in. And so I think uh, where I tend to uh, invest the most energy is on defining that outer architecture so that the teams have the freedom to uh, control the, the um, inner architectures of their apps. It's interesting. If you're familiar with um, Eric Evans' work on, on domain-driven design, 
Yep. Um, yeah, but, yeah. So, 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 you know, I discovered uh, DDD uh, in the early 2000s and mostly around designing class, same with Fowler, design classes and inheritance abstraction, but more the OO. Um, and, but more recently, I've rediscovered it from the kind of the, the name of this program, Bound to Context. And so how do you look at a large organization and figure out what are your natural sort of bounded context? And then to your point, that's the connection with the outer and the inner architecture. Like within that context, it's more of the inner architecture. How do the systems communicate? Yeah. But what you got to pay attention, and you know this as an architect, it's the dependencies and the outer ones that are ones that will sort of really kill you over time. Because yeah. otherwise everything, you know, the monolith, we laid everything, talk to everything. And we could do some amount of library and stuff, but a lot of times there was nothing that would prohibit something from talking to something else. Um, right. Whereas now, as we see more of these bounded contexts and even down to whether that's serverless or containers, having more of a definitive runtime separation uh, between these systems. Um, yep. When you guys think about, so your area is, is education and, and schooling. I imagine I've heard peeking your database, I think see things like students and, and, and schools and districts and those sort of things. Do you guys think uh, use domain-driven design at that level? Um, how do you think about modeling? I guess, how do you think about modeling the, the business domain that, that you guys are in? Um, right. So we're, we're actually going through, we're, yeah, we're kind of going through this exercise right now, as a matter of fact. So uh, the various dev teams that we have uh, historically were more like project teams where a new project would come in and everybody would kind of own all the different uh, parts of the, the source code that was uh, gaggle and uh, recently made a shift where we actually defined domains and the teams became uh, service owners for the services within that domain. And uh, so that, that, that's the first step in, in that path. I think the, the, fortunately, fortunately, the application was very applications were very well architected and already had a natural uh, domain associated with them. Uh, but it was more of a, an, an organizational ch uh, change to make sure we said, hey, who's who's the who's the true owner of this server service and, and going through the process as well of defining um, SLOs, service level objectives. Yep for each service so that we know that, hey, how do we know if, if the work we're doing to improve the, um, the service level of these various components mm -hmm. is, is actually uh, helping? You know, if we invest in, in uh, response time or in availability, we need to be able to measure that. And so having those owners uh, has really helped in, make, in, in clarifying how we go about uh, managing the life of the service, not just the, the building of the project, but then the long life of the service. Well, you mentioned SLO. Have you been influenced by Google's SRE? Sure. Oh, yep. been all, are you guys using the air budgets? It's, I'm interested. Are you using the air budgets um, piece of it or, or, or not? Nope. No, so uh, we, we don't have error budgets. Uh, I suspect that that could be a conversation later on. We're, uh, at this point, I'm just trying to get a clear definition of, of what the SLO is, because I want to be able to say, uh, if, if, we, if we wanted to have an error budget, you can't even measure on if you've, you're uh, above or below budget if you don't know, is the yeah, service right. up or down? And, and that's where that, that so our, our first baby step is getting the SLOs defined and measuring those and uh, working towards those. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things that I've taken out, and by no means an expert in the SRE, but when I locked on to SLOs and error budgets. And the mm -hmm. thing that I really love about them is, see, normally, like, quote, unquote, product people are disconnected from the LTs 
of a service and solution. They're either taken for granted or they think that's what the technical people think about and they focus on features. And the thing I really love about the air budgets is it's a kind of counterbalance system, which is if you go too fast and ship a bunch of crap quickly, mm-hmm. then we're going to be like, no, you can't just keep shipping more features, which is the natural inclination of a lot of more business product owner type people. Um, and so where I've seen it, you're right. You start with SLOs and it's, it's a long time just to get those defined and written down. Mm-hmm. But the thing I really love about the appeal is now this product owner, I can be like, where do I want to make investment more capabilities or do I actually need to improve resiliency, reliability, speed in those? And that's all considered part of the service, like the, the, all of it versus, oh yeah, the non-functionals. Yeah, it's a really good point. I need to, I've uh, got a note to spend a little time thinking about that. I'm glad I could do that one. So, so, so Casey, you, you mentioned you guys, and I know you have a really deep history in AWS. You guys are AWS shop. And, and what are some of the topics that maybe it's AWS or not that are top of mind for you? Like what are the topics that are kind of things you're reading up on, things you're researching these days, things you're kind of paying attention to because they may go like, can, can you help our readers or readers, listeners uh, come up with some, items for their to-do list. First of all, transitioning from a consulting role to leading a, a product team as a CTO, uh, it, it changed what my focus was, where as a consultant, you're always having to stay ahead and make sure you know how all these new tools and techniques can be applied. Uh, I think that my focus right now is mostly on fundamentals. Fundamentals is the the biggest thing, and, and there's some specifics that come out of that, but um, so, like, here's the crazy thing that comes to mind. You remember, uh, have you heard um, uh, Vince Lombardi's speech, the whole, this is a football speech? You know what I'm oh, talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. So, it's like, um, just, just I can, let me cover that real quick, uh, just to make sure. So, like, uh, Vince Lombardi, famous uh, coach for Green Bay Packers, team loses the, the championship in uh, – I think it was 1960, 1961. They come back to training camp and he's like, we're going to focus on fundamentals. Where And he starts, he picks up the football and says, this is a football. And then he goes through and he says, this is how you block. This is how you tackle. Starts page one of the playbook, right? And uh, I think the story goes, um, one of his wide receivers or someone starts laughing at him and says, coach, you're going way too fast. Slow down. And he's like, no, we are going to focus on fundamentals. And they, they go on to win the championship. I, I don't know. They shut out the um, New York Giants. And, and win the championship that year. And the thing that I love about that story is fundamentals wins football games. In my opinion, fundamentals wins in software as well. So um, so right now, my focus is on fundamental. You heard me talk about continuous integration yeah, yeah, and yeah. things like WIP and things like these. These aren't new ideas. They're not sexy, but they win. And uh, so the biggest thing is, is really um, fast feedback. Like how do I ensure that uh, everybody in the software delivery process is getting fast feedback on the work they're doing because fast feedback lowers WHIP, lower WHIP, back to Little's log, it also lowers your lead time. Um, uh, here's uh, so uh, we're going retro today. Uh, uh, Agile Manifesto. This was written yeah. 20 years ago, almost Ryan. Like, right? Yeah. You remember when you first? I think it was like 2004 or something when I first read yeah. the Agile Manifesto, and it's so simple, but it was so powerful at the time. Uh, I just reread this to our team. I made the I made the whole team read it, and I've started using the Agile Manifesto values as an opening to um, regular meetings with with my leadership team because they still apply. Um, I I've got it pulled up here. I'm gonna just read a couple real quick. Yeah, yeah, go for it. 
and, 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 and th just think about how much this yeah. applies today in 2020. Yeah. Individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Yeah, working yeah. software over comprehensive documentation. Customer collaboration over contract negotiation. Responding to change over following a plan. Th these are so uh, applicable to us today. So I, I, I think we gotta, we gotta live those still. We, we can't, we gotta remember that that was so powerful when we first heard it, it's still powerful today. So um, uh, where, where else am I spending a lot of energy on? Uh, back to continuous integration, long-lived branches. Come on, let's, let's, let's pass the CI test. Yes. Pass the CI test. Are we getting, is everybody getting to a, um, to drunk every day? Is there a, is that trigger a build? And is that build repaired in 10 minutes? It's a, it's a pretty simple goal. It's not a new idea, but um, that that's where I'm focused. Um, and as far as like new kind of trends and so forth, I, I, my focus is mostly on simplification. I think uh, mm -hmm. you, you see, I love um, uh, Kelsey Hightower, his tweets when he gets in this, yeah. he, he, he goes deep on simplification. He's got this joke project called No Code, uh, but <laughs> no code that. Uh, but th the thing is, I look at some of the things that entangle us today. I I'm still fighting with Maven, the Maven release plugin, wow. and how bad it plays with true CI. Uh, so how do you get that out of there? Um, Gitflow is still showing up all over the place. People are still doing Gitflow. So um, so what, what am I looking at? Uh, one thing that I'm spending a lot of time researching right now is the idea of monorepos. So mm -hmm. we, we swung hard away when we did the monolith to microservice as, yeah. as an industry. We, we, when we went from monoliths to microservices, we got all these separate repos and separate pipelines. But along the way, we got a, a lot of uh, heavy cognitive load, like managing 50 pipelines for an organization is it's a lot of work, right? Yeah, yeah. it's funny. So sorry, it's funny you mentioned that. I see we oversteer, uh, you know, way over as an industry. Every day I go talk to a client who's good. I'm getting off a monolith. I'm going to microservices. All right. And th th my, my point to that is one, how are you going to chop them up? Um, and they mm -hmm. usually don't know. And secondly is they can't get one application to a build pipeline. And deploy mm. like what makes you think you're going to be able to get 12 of them or 10 of them, right. whatever your service is and 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 it's interesting because they want to jump away from all that is quote unquote bad with the monolith to something that's newer and better and cooler you know and sexier right. but there's little focus on well how did it become the thing the, the horrible thing that it is right you know and a lot of it was architecture dependencies you know, these sort of things. And if you don't fix some of those, just going to microservices and more code repos and stuff doesn't fundamentally fix some of the challenges. It doesn't. Um, it, in fact, it creates more. So to your point is now I got to do service discovery. Now, like, I mean, I got to do a whole bunch of other stuff that didn't even exist in the modern world. And I'm wrestling with that stuff. Well, and, and coordination, coordination becomes really challenging. If you have a bunch of teams yeah. working on different pipelines on different repos uh, and how do you know that the change that you the, the dependencies that you tested with in your pre-production environment matches what production is going to look like? If some other team is on their way to production the same time you are, how do you know, how do you validate your code against them and, and coordinate if you're going before or after them and, and dependencies along with um, library dependencies? So let's say they've got an artifact that comes out of their pipeline. 
that you need to pull in as a new dependency. So it, it gets really ugly. And this is what I'm really interested in monorepos for is that with monorepos, uh, that whole round tripping through um, Nexus or Artifactory with, let me create an artifact, put the new version up there and then update the downstream palms to pull the new, like that, that, that problem goes away because I'm able to say, well, I've got one repo, one commit, that one commit can represent multiple, you still get the benefits of my, one of the big benefits of microservices is the um, deploy time uh, decoupling so that different resources can scale independently, different resources can fail independently. Yeah. You still you still have that value because I'm deploying independently, but um, my build and my dependency graph can be managed in, in a local repo. So um, haven't done much with this yet, but uh, it's something I've, I've got my eye on and um, spent a lot of time looking at um, uh, Bazel, the build tool okay. that was open source from, from uh, Google for uh, for managing mono repos. And, yeah. Well, cool. Now I have to pick up that. I don't know as much as you do about that. You know, I think that it's funny as an industry. You're right. We, we, t we tend to solve the same problems again and again. You just got to wait 20 years and, and it comes back around. Like if you're here long yeah. enough, right, it's, it's going to come yep. back around. And uh, I do think that the um, the oversteering to, to, to so many services is going to come back around. I mean, our, our tendency is keep it in mono until it's painful. And mm -hmm. when it's really painful, then break it out. But until yep. it becomes painful, don't just artificially start chopping things up because you're often wrong, especially early on in a project, you're often wrong about how you think about chopping and then you're gonna to live to regret it. But but again, that sometimes flies against the face of, if I go to a client, you, you come from consulting like I do. Hey, we're gonna create your mono repo and do this. That Those words, mono repo, would send off alarm bells amongst yeah. all the right. IT people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. Mono's bad, yeah. Right. Exactly, mono's bad, mono's bad. You know, that's, that's what we're um, <laughs> there's uh, there's got to be a ratio. I don't know what it is. I don't know if someone's done any work on this. There's got to be a ratio of microservices to developers that it, if it gets too high, yeah, uh, yeah, you know yeah. you're doing it wrong. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know if anyone's done any research. If you know of anything, I'd love to read it. We post this. We'll send out a challenge to folks. Like, there you go. What, what is your uh, microservice developer ratio? I bet you it's an, it would be an interesting point because my hypothesis would be that larger organizations that's going to be what a lower number but really it's probably more about speed you're right that's an interesting ratio but back to what you're saying earlier or can they do a deployment per day yep sort of per person yep. right um so well cool well last thing is uh the most important what are you listening to uh uh these days well um it is christmas time so uh, -huh. uh the, the kids are blaring the christmas music uh, I've got a rule in the house, no Christmas music till after Thanksgiving. So uh, <laughs> I like your rule. I would agree. Yeah. But, uh, so, so, uh, that's not what I, so, um, it's also reinvent season, uh, reinvent, uh, we always get a, a like a EDM artist on the replay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I've got my reinvent playlist going right now with, uh, some of the past, uh, the, the past artists that I've seen at uh, reinvent, um, uh, Zed, Martin Garrett. No, so Martin, Martin. Uh, um, it's funny, by reinvent, I've only gone three times, obviously not this year, but that's where I discovered EDM. Like, I don't know anything about EDM music. And I think it was Martin Garrix is how you pronounce Martin his Garrick. name. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I remember going to his show and I was just blown away, like absolutely right? floored. Yeah. Um, and I started playing all the time. It's just crazy. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, it's, I feel like, especially right now, because I'm, I'm sad that we're not in Vegas. Yeah, yeah we're not in Vegas, yeah you know, 50,000 of your closest friends. Uh, but 
Um, there's, there's one other artist, uh, actually, I just thought of that I've been listening to a bit, uh, and there's a little bit of a tech story in this one as well. Uh, have you ever heard of Tycho? No. So this guy, Scott Hanson, Scott Hanson, uh, he and I worked together actually in, um, early 2000s, probably 2001, uh, at a, at a startup, uh, company. And I, he sat right next to me, we shared a desk and he was the, he was the web designer. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember he came in one day and he's like, I'm quitting. I'm, I'm going to go make music. And, you know, we all kind of laughed. We're like, yeah, good luck, Scott. You know, uh, that worked out for him. And he, he had like a, uh, he invited us to a local, um, uh, like a, a bar in Sacramento here where he was playing. And it's like, he's up there on his keyboards making EDM type music. And there's like, you know, 10 people there. And we're like, yeah, this wasn't a good idea, Scott. And, and, and then I lost touch with Scott and I'm at um, Google IO, the Google conference. Yeah. Uh, this would have been 2013, 2014. And they have a, an artist up there, you know, at the end of the Google IO. Yeah. And it's Scott. And I'm sitting there. And I'm like, oh, crap, that's Scott. And, and uh, so I, he, he's famous now. So um, uh, Tycho is the name of the, right. the, the band. Uh, so I listened to him quite a bit, too, and, and realized that uh, he was right. He made the right move. And uh, <laughs> it's worked out well for, for Scott. And uh, he makes great music now. That's awesome. So, so Lindsay, we'll have to add Tycho uh, to, to our playlist as a part of this. Um, yeah. Casey, man, I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for making your time. It's been insightful. insightful.